UFO hacker Gary McKinnon is back in the headlines. We'll discuss that and other UFO-related news. Plus, we're hanging out with investigative filmmaker Jeremy Corbell on today's UFO Mod Pod. Hello, friends, and welcome to UFO Mod Pod. I'm Jason McClellan. I'm Ryan Sprague. And I'm Maureen Ellsbury. Thank you so much for joining us. We're glad to have Ryan back with us this week. And, you know, we are a strange bunch here at UFO Mod Pod. The three of us monitor UFO headlines like crazy. UFO-related stories are in the news every day. And we like starting every episode of UFO Mod Pod by discussing some of the bigger or better stories that have been in the news during the past couple of weeks. So with that being said, it's time for some UFO news. As we mentioned in our previous episode, there was this kind of hubbub about a UFO maybe in South Africa. There was a lot of buzz or not a lot of buzz on Twitter and and other social media with the hashtag UFOSA, SA for South Africa. Reports of sightings in Cape Town and other places. And we mentioned that it was probably related to some sort of crappy marketing campaign and that was the case it ended up just being uh something that was put together by a pr firm for a a beverage company for a company that that was releasing a health drink uh, the drink of the future but that's really the only kind of maybe perhaps tie-in to extraterrestrial marketing It, it really blew up in their faces i mean People didn't respond well to it. There was no reason for there to be an extraterrestrial theme to this product. It's just a little dairy beverage called Smart Drink on the go snack. Um, I mean, they went all out. They put these fake videos up of UFOs in the sky and UFOs crashing. They staged a, a UFO crash. They had people out there investigating it. They had fake news reports. Um, and they open up this UFO and inside it, there's this beverage. Uh, really, really lame. <laughs> yeah. I think they should have done more like a smart car, like a, a juice driving the smart car because it's smart, a smart drink on the go. Yeah. A smart car. There you go. They should have hired you. I know. Um, look, I, I think that UFOs and extraterrestrials certainly have a place in marketing. I'm not going so far as to say I support hoaxes uh, like what this, these these people tried to do and what others have tried to do with other failed marketing campaigns, but using the extraterrestrial theme makes sense if the product is somehow somehow has a tie into that. This smart drink, none whatsoever. Really lame. Really lame. <laughs> Boo. 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 If anything, guys, if they were going to go the alien route, like do cattle mutilation or something. If we're dealing with a milk drink, come on. <laughs> is it a milk drink? Did you it's, say a milk drink? It's a dairy product, yeah. Oh, oh. Dairy product, whatever. Come on. Yeah. Get your uh, get your UFO, you know, subtopics right. There you <laughs> go. That's yeah. So the, funny. Extract the dairy from these poor cows. Well, yeah. here's here's a name that's back in the news. We haven't heard this name for a while, but uh, it's the name that we're all too familiar talking about and reporting on. And that is Mr. Gary McKinnon, the UFO hacker. Yes. Gary McKinnon is in the news again. 
for those of you who don't remember, McKinnon was charged by the U.S. with the biggest military computer hack of all time all the way back in 2001. 2001-2002 is when the, uh, the hacking took place. He was looking for information about UFOs and extraterrestrials in NASA and Pentagon computers, and he spent more than a decade fighting extradition. But experts concluded that McKinnon, who suffers from Asperger's syndrome, would likely commit suicide if he was extradited from the U.K. to the U.S. And in 2012, Home Secretary Theresa May announced that the U.K. would not extradite him. Well, we haven't heard much from McKinnon since then, but he was recently interviewed on the U.K. web show Rich Planet TV. And it's interesting to hear McKinnon talking about the entire process from all the way back to childhood when he became interested in space and UFOs. You know, like many of us, it started with a, an interest in sci-fi. Uh, but he, he discusses that, how he became interested. And, and uh, he even was a member of Bufora, the British UFO Research Association. So he was receiving their newsletter. And, you know, he was, he was an active, interested person in UFOs. And that's why when he hacked or walked into these government computers... He uh, was able to find what he found. Another thing that that, uh, really was the catalyst for him to look into the computers was Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project. Right after this Disclosure Project event happened um, and hearing the the testimony of very credible witnesses, high-ranking military personnel, government officials talking about what they knew about UFOs, that spurred Gary to look into these government computers to see what he could find. He also said that one... Disclosure Project witness in particular, Donna Hare, a former uh, NASA employee who worked at Johnson Space Center. She's a photo specialist. And at the Disclosure Project, she claimed that her department was charged with airbrushing UFOs out of NASA photos. McKinnon really found that interesting, so he wanted to look in NASA computers and find that evidence for himself. So that was another thing that really encouraged him to take on this uh, this task of, of looking for more information. And... Also in this recent interview, he talks about one of the more interesting things that uh, Gary claims he found that that uh, is kind of well known now in the UFO circles is uh, a spreadsheet containing a list of what was called non-terrestrial officers and spaceships um, transfer logs. So evidence indicating to Gary that there are these officers in space and spaceships. But the interesting thing in this interview is Gary mentioned that those spreadsheets were not NASA spreadsheets. Is one that makes sense that talking about spaceship officers and spaceships wouldn't really fall under NASA purview, but that was in fact something acquired from Navy computers. So Navy Excel spreadsheet allegedly had names of non-terrestrial officers as well as spaceships. That's interesting. But here's something that. I found a little peculiar. So here's a guy who has no problem believing that the United States military has spaceships with a space crew, with with, uh, non-terrestrial officers. So we have these these manned ships out in space, lots of them flown by the Navy. But he was asked if he believes that the Apollo missions – actually took place or if that's all a big scam on the american public on the world public gary said that for scientific reasons there's enough evidence to him why it would have been impossible with the technology available at the time that seems weird so at the time when we were breaking into space no no our our technology wasn't good enough then but 
now, or I guess even a decade ago when Gary supposedly found this stuff, our technology is good enough to have spaceships flying in space full of crew. Like mm-hmm. the Hillen Cutter. Um, Hillen Cutter and the LeMay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that is really interesting. And I, th- I think also, you know, he talks a lot about um, in this current interview how, you know, he was trying to download those NASA photos and there was a strange cigar shaped object on a planet that might not be Earth, but mm-hmm. it may be Earth. And um, that all of a sudden it was deleted and he wasn't able to download the rest of the image. Like uh, that he seems to have a big hang up like so many other people on NASA in specific. Uh, so, well, so again, maybe, look at you know, look at what what spurred his interest. Really, the Donna right. Hair thing. So that makes sense. But. Yeah, but but this is what I'm saying is is maybe that's a reason why he's saying you know he believes there's enough evidence to say that the the Apollo missions were in fact a, a hoax, but the Navy can run all these ships. So that's right. Not, not NASA. Not NASA. Not NASA. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's very interesting to hear his story and to also have him talk about technology at the time because when he started this. You know, the Internet was still pretty new, and he was operating on a dial-up modem. So he describes the process of, like, accessing these photos and having them, like, slowly load line by line. Yeah. Because um, imagine this. Well, (laughs) well, imagine this. Like, NASA raw images are gigantic files. Oh, yeah. The raw images, and that's what he was accessing. So think about accessing a raw image over a dial-up modem. I mean, how long that must have taken. Yeah, you're not going to not going to be able to get it. So and the Internet bill, you know, people like to like to give him crap for not downloading and saving everything. Um, mm-hmm. But these huge files over a dial up modem, not going to happen. Yeah. Um, he was able to save the, the spreadsheets, he says he he got. But, of course, his computers were confiscated when his house was raided. And he says he's never gotten that hard drive back. He still thinks that he's going to get it back. But uh if there is such sensitive material on that hard drive, I imagine it won't be there if he gets that hard drive back. Oh, yeah. Do you think that um, – this is kind of random, but not really. Do you think that uh, Gary McKinnon and Edward Snowden have been talking somehow? Oh, I, I would not doubt that at all. Nothing conspiratorial at all, but, I mean, they do have kind of similar interests. Similar s- interests um, and situations. And situations, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I think they would – kind of have a perfect bonding situation there. <laughs> well, another name that uh, we have mentioned and reported on and covered uh, so many times over the year is back in the news, just like Gary McKinnon, and that is Mr. Kirsan Ilyumzanov. Well, and this is a little bit less of a UFO story in what the immediate news is, but... Well, maybe maybe that's the reason for it, Maureen. Right. <laughs> Maybe it's it's very very true, but uh, alleged alien abductee Kirsan Ilyumzanov has temporarily stepped down from his role as the president of the World Chess Federation because he's being accused that he's supporting the Syria regime of President Bashar al-Assad. Dun dun Crazy. dun! Yeah. Um, so now the United States has imposed sanctions against Ilyumzanov and last month froze all his assets for his suspected ties to the regime. But Ilyumzanov denies the allegations and is fighting to get his name removed from the U.S. Treasury shanks, uh, sanctions. He's, he's going to get shanked. Sanctions <laughs> list. 
Oh, he definitely is. <laughs> uh, on Sunday, December 6th, the executive director of the World Chess Federation, Nigel Freeman, has issued a statement addressing the situation, stating, following the announcement by the U.S. Department of Treasury that the U.S. levied sanctions against Kyrgyzstan Ilyamsinov, Russian citizen and FIDE president Mr. Ilyamsinov has informed the presidential board that he will withdraw from any legal, financial, and business operations of FIDE until such time as Mr. Ilyamsinov is removed from the Office of Foreign Assets Controls Sanctions List. Now, Ilyamsinov isn't concerned about the move by the U.S. Department of Treasury. In an appearance on News Channel Russia 24, he commented, the fact that they put me on the list, well, look into that. I'll go into the Treasury and ask what the complaints about me have been, what questions. There are no connections. I was in Syria two years ago officially. We held a children's tournament there, and I met with the country's leadership. There are no commercial relationships or economic ties. This former president of the Russian Republic of Kalmykia and 20-year president of the World Chess Federation not only believes in the existence of intelligent extraterrestrials, in 2010 he publicly claimed to have met with extraterrestrials in Moscow in 1997 where he not only met with them, but communicated with them and was shown around their spaceship. And lucky enough, he was taken into space. Ilyamzinov also claims that he's been taken by extraterrestrials on multiple occasions, and he's been speaking about this in front of people for over a decade. Uh, another thing he believes is that humans are a product of extraterrestrial intervention, and he asserts that chess, we were given chess by aliens. Hmm. Thank you, aliens, for this lovely chess set. I know that he believes that, and that is, you know, it makes sense that he travels around to all these places in his official capacity as president of the World Chess Federation. He has in the past also made headlines because he has played chess with other bad guys like Gaddafi. <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> uh, you know, he's BFFs with Putin, and uh, I don't know. I, I just... Well I could see the potential for him to be this secret undercover bad guy because chess is a perfect disguise, but <laughs> I don't think so. Well, and, and, and that may be a thing, too, why he's getting targeted as well. I mean, this would make more sense if it wasn't the U.S. Treasury targeting him, but in fact, um, the world chess officials, because they've been kind of trying to get him out of this position in the past, Uh I remember a couple of years ago, there was definite uh, run that people were kind of ashamed that he was bringing so much attention onto the alien abduction right. aspect and mm -hmm. overshouting, you know, um, shrouding the yeah the last beautiful chess the last election. Yeah, the the person he ran against was really concerned that it was it was tarnishing the the federation and his alien claims would make it difficult to get sponsors and things like that, but. You know, I love how non-phased Ilyamsinov is about all of this. He says, yeah, they added me to a list, um, whatever. He says, <laughs> they've frozen my assets, but just my U.S. assets. And guess what? I don't have any U.S. assets, so have yeah. fun with that. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Um, yeah, so, so... And he still traveled to the U.S., uh, you know, right after that news broke that... Uh, well, I guess it was a month ago that uh, he found out he was on this list... But he just stepped down and still made a trip to uh, the States because they're working on contracts to hold uh, a championship here in 2016. I, I think that they should really look highly upon him, in fact, because I've never talked about chess more in my life over in 
you know, since the last five years. <laughs> Same here. Um, That's very true. So he's doing something right. Yeah. <laughs> well, he definitely is an interesting guy, and I've said this on many occasions. I would love to sit down with him at some point and have a conversation. Um, one of the guys higher on my list of interesting people to talk with about UFOs and extraterrestrials, he definitely – I guess it's it's wrong to call him a alien abductee more of a contactee because I think mm-hmm. his his experiences have all been positive. But uh, let's see. There was something uh, on television recently that painted a, a picture of, of actual alien abduction. Yes, that's true, guys. Um, this was on a recent episode of Saturday Night Live. Um, it was after the first uh, post-monologue sketch um, with host Ryan Gosling. Um, in this sketch, Gosling, Cecily Strong, and Kate McKinnon uh, played abductees. Um, they were brought in by the National Security Agency to give their testimony about their abductions and the NSA saying that these were three credible individuals who actually went through a legitimate abduction. Um, yeah, the first, the first uh, confirmed case. Verified. Of, confirmed, yeah. verified. Yeah. yeah. You know, and immediately, I mean, first, it's SNL, and then second, we look at the three individuals and they're sort of what most people see as the prototypical abductee. You've got the sort of the backwoods, almost Travis Walting looking logger, Ryan Gosling. You've got um, Cecily Strong, who's sort of your new age hippie. And then you've got uh, Kate, Kate McKinnon, McKinnon. Yeah. who is just downright like middle aged uh, train wreck. Um, so, the 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 big reason that this sketch has sort of gone viral, guys, is because Gosling just started cracking up towards the end of it, and which sort of you know went viral from there on everyone else in the cast. And everyone loves a good giggle on SNL with the live sketches, but uh, yet again, one of the uh, one of the perceptions of alien abductees is completely humorous over-the-top, caricature-ish, and um, doesn't paint a good picture for the phenomenon in general. What do you guys think? Well, so to me, I, my sister-in-law sent this to me. I was somewhere without a TV on Saturday night, so um, immediately when I woke up Sunday morning, I had a text uh, with the link to this video. And, you know, I think it's one of those things where, in this instance, the fact that Kate McKinnon is so hilarious, she's just such a good actress, Oh, yeah. That is totally overshadowed by what she was actually saying. But in this other way, they kind of did uh, paint some stereotypical uh, portraits of the contactees versus the abductees, and where you have right. this negative versus positive experience. And Kate McKinnon's character is like, what? Like, <laughs> but, but I loved it because one thing she did say that has been talked about a lot is whether or not there is, you know, these different obviously races of aliens that are alleged to be out there, but also different sort of sectors. So she says, I don't think I was dealing with the top brass. And that's something <laughs> you hear from a lot of UFO researchers. They think that they are just kind of like the, the peons, the, the greys are, are these people who are um, sort of leading these tasks for a different, uh, you know, higher up sector. And then when she says, you know, she was pretty sure a lot of it was off the books. Uh, <laughs> I was laughing and, you know, it's getting one of these things that Jason and I have talked about a lot in the past. 
is that sometimes it's, yeah, it doesn't paint a great picture of the situation, but I mean, I did laugh, but I was laughing at Kate McKinnon mostly, but, um, you know, whether or not it's something to be really upset about, I'm sure a lot of the UFO community would be upset about it. Well, and naturally, I think it obviously depends on your perspective, um, who's who's watching it, and, and uh, that would change how you view it. For people who uh, claim to have been abducted, obviously something like that is kind of painful to watch. If if it's not something that you personally had a negative experience with, yes, it's it's quite humorous. And our friend and filmmaker Bryce Zabel even commented uh, on Facebook when I posted it. He, he said it's an extremely funny sketch, but uh, the actual irony is there are some abductions that have been reported that appear to be credible. And he, of course, mentioned how he's ab- adapting the Betty and Barney Hill case uh, for a movie. But yeah, Bryce found it quite humorous too. But he did carefully point out that the actual facts are less humorous. Right, right. Definitely. But it's okay to enjoy something like that. It's true. Everyone needs a laugh every now and again, even when it comes to the UFO topics. That's right, for sure. Well, in our effort to provide a modern introduction to the UFO phenomenon for a new generation, on each episode of UFO Mod Pod, we highlight a historical UFO case. And because the event just celebrated its 50th anniversary, today we're looking at the Kecksburg UFO incident of 1965. Here are the basics of the case. On December 9, 1965, thousands of witnesses in multiple states saw fireballs streaking across the sky. Witnesses in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, saw the object crash in the woods, and some even described it as making a controlled landing in the woods. Witnesses who claimed to have gone into the woods to see the UFO described it as a large metal craft 10 to 12 feet long and shaped like an acorn. Military stormed the area and hauled the mysterious object away on a flatbed truck. Despite witnesses being present, the military at the time claimed that they searched the woods but were unable to locate anything. The official explanation offered to explain the UFO was a meteor. Interesting case, and it has kept researchers busy for more than 50 years now, guys. Oh, yeah. Very mysterious case, guys. Um, I I've been looking a lot into the uh, the work that Leslie Keen has done on uh, on this case, and even going so far as to file a lawsuit. I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Um, very interesting that even to this day um, we're still looking into it, and uh, even more recent developments coming from members of MUFON. I believe. Indeed, John Ventry has. Uh, been in the press lately because uh, they believe, and this has happened over the course of, you know, last couple of decades, every five or six years, it's like, we think we found the proof to <laughs> explain what was happening. But now they think they actually have, you know, verified that this was indeed um, part of a GE, oh, give me the official name, Jason, you'll know it. Uh, yeah, the General Electric Mark II reentry vehicle. Thank you. Um, Mark II reentry vehicle. Yeah, this is this is an interesting possibility. It's been put forward before, and John Ventry was, was just in the news recently saying that that's uh, his conclusion that's most likely the identification for the Kecksburg UFO. Um, yeah, Leslie Kane looked into this case, and she was able to – because a lot of people thought that perhaps it could be a Russian spy satellite – Um, Because there is a Russian Mm -hmm. spy satellite that came down, but uh, through Leslie's efforts, they were able to find out that that came down in Canada. 
Um, so this is this is a different different object, different craft. But you know the the evidence and the the witness testimony is so all over the place with this case. But that is how witness testimony works. Um, right. You're not going to have two people tell the same story or have the same description. I mean, some people said who claimed to have seen this said it was the size you know ten to twelve feet long, and others said it was the size of like two briefcases. Big difference there. I don't know what kind of briefcase you're, you carry, but yeah, this, this General Electric Mark II reentry vehicle, very interesting because it also kind of looks acornish. You could see that type of shape, um, and that craft supposedly had some copper. sort of yeah, well, yeah, it was uh, partially composed of copper, and that would explain the the green greenish color that witnesses described seeing it streaking through the sky, right, and. Uh, you know, it, it also had some markings on it that might have looked strange to people. The, the Kecksburg UFO people saw this, like what they described as looking like hieroglyph, hieroglyphics, some sort of strange language on it. So who knows? I mean, this isn't a definitive explanation, but as we look into UFO sightings and look for possible explanations, this one is a pretty good possibility to explain what people saw because – I've never seen a General Electric Mark II reentry vehicle <laughs> <laughs> or any sort of reentry vehicle. I mean, if, you know, a, a SpaceX reentry vehicle like crashed in my backyard, I might recognize it because I've read up on it so much and, and followed everything that they do. But still, it would look weird. You're not expecting to see some sort of spacecraft in your yard that's going to look foreign to you. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure after reentry being burned up and stuff. Um, whatever words and things were, were on the craft itself are going to be kind of funky. Um, so yeah, it would look weird. I wouldn't know what to make of it. And, and I think it's kind of interesting because they do point out that, um, that they believe, and, and we don't have confirmation on this, of course, that they had a nuclear or atomic generator on it, which is why, mm -hmm. you know, you had the army running in and, uh, military, taking this thing away in hazard suits and right um, that's been yeah. a big part of the evidence with this case the the just witnesses seeing the military how fast they were on the scene how they cordoned off the area how they were rushing people away at gunpoint and being very aggressive mm -hmm. um so that that to people has been evidence suggesting extraterrestrial but uh yeah i mean something top secret something with uh <laughs> radioactive that could also potentially explain it. Right. Yeah. But it's going to be, this is, this is one of those cases that is, you know, uh, has provided a significant point of income for the town afterwards. They do their little UFO festival and it's kind of a tourist thing, such as how Roswell has developed their great alien uh, main street pretty much. So I don't think this case is going to be, oh, we're going to close the doors on this and, and we'll forget it happened or maybe this is definitely it or not because I think there's always going to be, you know, pretty solid debate even though we might have a really, really good uh, option here. Yeah, for sure. And I hope that door does stay open. I hope people continue to investigate it and look into this possibility because, you know, we have possibilities. We have likely possibilities in this case i think that's what we have is a likely possibility but we don't have verifiable proof so until we have that the extraterrestrial option is certainly still there so i do hope that the door doesn't close on the kecksburg ufo case and i hope uh good quality researchers continue digging into it and uh, trying to find out more
Agreed. Well, our guest today is investigative filmmaker Jeremy Corbell. Jeremy explores a wide variety of topics and individuals within the field of UFOs, and he does an impressive job with his research. Jeremy, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today. Hey, Jason. Hey, Maureen. Hey, Ryan. How you doing? Good. Good. Hanging in there. Good, my man. So it's been a little while since we checked in with you, but uh, I guess for this show, we should start maybe at the beginning of when we first crossed paths and uh, when our shared world of weirdness kind of collided. And that was back when you had a fantastic UFO sighting of your own. What year was that? Well, it definitely was an unidentified flying object. Uh, you know, I'm really bad with time. I don't know what year it was, yeah. um, but it must have been what now, like six years ago? I bet it's... it was 2010. That's my guess. Wow. <laughs> You're good. Yeah, I'm terrible with time too, but that, that time frame sounds about right. It's so long ago. Yeah, yeah. That was an interesting I, – I wrote to you. And I said, hey, man, what is this? This happened. What is this? Yeah, I was very curious myself mm -hmm. uh, what it was that I saw. Yeah. And uh, we were contacted by NBC in L.A. And we told them what we knew about the, the video and told them about uh, what you had told us. And uh, they ran that uh, on the, the news that night. And, of course, they brought in an expert, an expert to oh, no. talk about this wonderful UFO. And uh, this, of course, is – I'll let you talk about it. But uh... science guy. <laughs> yeah, we must have a healthy fear of anybody who calls himself an expert in the field of UFOs. Yes, of course. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. So um, what was interesting about that kind of experience, you know, as you know, all of you, um, you know, I became interested in the entire concept of uh, visitation through the story that I heard when I was 13 years old, when Bob Lazar, Gene Huff and George Knapp did some radio interviews um, exposing what Bob's experiences were. So his description of the propulsion system was so mind-flipping for me. You know, the idea of not having a rocket that pushes forward on a project trajectory, but rather have something falling into space through gravity wave amplification. So this whole idea was so counterintuitive, uh, it literally weaponized my imagination, as I like to say. And I became so curious, I looked into the UFO phenomenon you know, since I was 13, but, you know, I'd never really seen anything that was pretty astounding. And there I am walking in Santa Monica and I said, you know, holy shit, that's the silver surfer was, is the nice way to say it. And it looked to me like, um, something traversing back and forth, back and forth and glowing on fire. It actually looked kind of dangerous. So, you know, out of pure curiosity, I put it out online saying, does anybody know what this is? I caught this on camera. Are there, is there, did anybody else see it? Because it was, you know, really bright and I figured other people must've seen it. And the news in Los Angeles picked up on that video, contacted you guys. And, you know, then they brought in the expert, Bill Nye, the science guy. And I was dumbfounded with his conclusion. His conclusion was that whoever made that video, which was me on my iPhone, must have superimposed brine shrimp into the footage, which I didn't even know what that was. I had to Google it. It's sea monkeys. 
<laughs> so apparently, sea monkeys is the new disinformation swamp gas, and I was just trying to find out what it was I saw, so it really ticked me off, and I went on you know, with a vengeance, and I went to find out exactly what it was that I saw, and I found an aeronautics specialist that was able to analyze the footage and know the trajectory, the speed, the descent rate, everything, the approximate size, found six other witnesses with videos, created a little forum, and eventually came to the extraordinary conclusion that what we saw that day, all of us in Santa Monica, was, drumroll, Go. Red Bull skydiving team with flares on their ankles. Case closed. Mystery solved. And of course. immediately after you had done that, I knew that we were going to be great friends because <laughs> you not only had this this curiosity in place, but you also had that had that drive to find the answers no matter where they led. And you were able to identify your own UFO. And that was fantastic. And, and I think this, this too, is kind of a turning point. I did find out the ac- exact date was actually December 1st in 2010. So uh, pretty close to just uh, wow. five years ago here. And, and the interesting thing about this is, is being full-time in the field at that point, we started seeing a lot more videos um, that then, based on this conclusion that you did, that I was able to usually identify, the first place I'd go look is at local skydiving groups to mm-hmm. see if they were... Um, you know, doing any nighttime dives at that point with flares because this became a big thing people were doing and people were seeing all these objects, you know, forming strange shapes in the sky and and what have you. So this was kind of a go-to source for then being able to easily figure out a lot of other cases for me, at least. Yeah, absolutely. It was probably my first experience uh, seeing that display, the aerial display, um, so that equipped me, gave me the tools to, to identify similar sightings. It was very cool. And I, I love to credit you with that, Jeremy, because you, you did arm us with that knowledge. And I, I just have to chime in about Bill Nye. That, that was so infuriating. And since then, I, I can't look at the guy without scowling a little bit. But people like him and even Mr. Neil deGrasse Tyson kind of have this smugness when they're asked to give opinions about things, specifically UFOs, where they just have a flippant remark. They don't act like scientists. They act like know-it-alls, and they're they're completely unscientific in their opinions on something, as Bill Nye was, just saying, oh, that's that's Brian Shrimp superimposed on the video. He didn't say, you know, in my experience, you know, I've seen this something like this before. It could potentially be a hoax with Brian Shrimp superimposed on a video looks kind of weird, but I don't know. Of course not. He's but, Bill Nye, the science guy. He has to know. And and that's the thing too is they they completely contacted the wrong person. Bill Nye, the science guy, is more of yes, he does he knows science in in some yes. respects, some fields. Uh, I was actually on the Bill Nye, the science guy show when as an extra when I was about nine or ten, <laughs> wow. and he's a jerk. <laughs> and it's wow. it's like mostly well known, but a lot of people don't know that because he has his little bow ties and he runs around. But he's not a nice person. Even and, people in bow ties can be jerks. Yeah, what? I know it's shocking, right? You'd think that bow tie would would be a clear aspect of. Oh, please come come in and have a cup of coffee. I wear uh, I wear bow ties. Am I a jerk? 
Well, not to me. <laughs> yeah, never to any of us. So, um, you know, inconclusive. What's, what's interesting <laughs> about all this is, you know, look, as we know with public figures, you can do an interview with them and splice it together however you want. You know, I'm, I'm giving them enough credit that, you know, maybe they said, well, what could it be if it was, you know, absolutely crazy or you wanted to de- debunk this? That that could have been the question that they just cut out the question. That happens all the time. I don't think that's the case. I think that he was trying to poke fun. Um, but, you know, he offered zero scientific evidence for the brine shrimp theory, which is an awesome theory. Um, and, and that was the thing that really astounded me. You mentioned Neil deGrasse Tyson. You know, a lot of these guys, you know, they need to keep a facade in place. If they get touched with the kind of UFO curse in the scientific field, you know, that can really harm them in their career and that sort of thing. And that is an intentional um, you know, position that has been set forward to the American public and greater, as we all know, with the Robertson panel, it was identified that the greatest risk uh, to national security is not, in fact, these objects that are traversing our airspace with impunity, but rather the public thought or opinion that these could be um, non-terrestrial vehicles. So that was from the Robertson panel. We know exactly why there's this ridicule factor associated with ufology. But to Neil deGrasse Tyson's kind of credit, if you were able to see the interview that he did with Edward Snowden, and I wrote about this on my website, um, he was talking to Edward Snowden about aliens and about extraterrestrials, because now it's pretty hip to do so, because we've learned so much about exoplanets and our own Milky Way galaxy. And I thought Snowden, this is an article I decided to write because I thought he had a very, very interesting answer. You know, by the way, Edward Snowden, I have never met a technological geek that was so eloquent. There's something more going on with that story than meets the eye. But what Snowden did was he talked about the types of civilizations we have and that any technologically advanced civilization will quickly learn within a hundred years of having something where information data can be sent and transmitted through numbers that that information will need to be encrypted. And if we're out looking like SETI is for some sort of signal that within a hundred years of technological advancement, any society will put a lockdown and put encryption so that anything we see would look like background radiation noise. And I thought that was the most fascinating uh, perspective on the search for exoplanets and signals coming from other places. You know, we, we run into the problem of encryption. And this was really fascinating. And Neil deGrasse Tyson brought that out of him. So I'll, I'll, I do give credit to these guys in some way. But Jeremy, you found yourself in this interesting role now as an investigative filmmaker. Was your UFO sighting in Santa Monica something that's, that uh, encouraged that? You know, that was kind of um, fun. It was kind of fun because I held up my camera, I put this thing up, and I realized you can get, you know, just about to the bottom of anything if you put enough heart and soul into it. So so that definitely kind of gave me the bug to, hey, let me try to do this on a, on a greater level. Um, but I had already kind of started then, you know, I have, you know, family associates and friends that you know, have told me things and gave me information, nothing I could ever use on the record, but it was definitely kind of like breadcrumbs leading me to certain people. And I guess I've been pretty lucky in that, you know, people of high credibility and oftentimes high military rank 
have given me the heads up on certain individuals that I should document, go speak with, um, or, or just try to find it kind of more on, because there are contingencies within the military industrial complex or just simply within the United States military, high ranking officials that are of the camp that this information should be given to the public at large. And essentially a quote would be from one of these individuals I'm talking about, there is nothing bad sociologically, technologically, even uh, you know, in people's faith and spirituality to knowing the truth. And the truth is that we have been visited, that we have been visited since antiquity, and that we actually have materials that we are working with that are non-terrestrial, given to us or taken. These are projects that occur all the time. And this is the fact. And some people believe, as I do, not only can we handle the truth, but we should know the truth. The citizen hearing that took place at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. in recent years was an event where people, like you mentioned, high-ranking government officials, uh, politicians, really quality witnesses were there to testify about UFO and UFO-related issues. And that's something that you were a part of. Absolutely. Initially, I was, you know, a hired gun. You know, I was a director for the Truth Embargo film, which was supposed to be basically the baby of the citizen hearing. Citizen hearing was supposed to produce that. And um, at that time, my business partner, Ruben Langdon, was you know, saying, hey, I really need you on this. I, I saw your Silver Surfer video. I realized you were into UFOs. I looked you up, found all this information. You know, the reason I started in this is because I had my own sighting and, you know, I need you on this. And I was very, very hesitant. I wasn't pleased with all of the working elements that were going on with the hearing. But over time, I took a deeper and deeper role to the point where, you know, Ruben and I are the primary partners of the citizen hearing footage and we um, are trying to disseminate that footage and get it out despite that, you know, there was a massive going over budget and all this stuff. And I would like to be able to announce, yes, we've done it. We have fulfilled all of our obligations to those that supported the beginning of the hearing and getting that going. And now what we have is a historic body of uh, testimony, you know, the largest uh, compilation of testimony at one time with credible individuals talking about how not only do they know, but they have been part of the cover-up of the secrecy of non-humans engaging humanity. So this archive now can go out into the world and you know we've, we've done the job, we've got it right, and now let's pump it out. Let's get people to see it because it is transforming. It is transforming to hear such a large body of evidence from credible individuals. It, it is truly transforming. Well, congratulations it, to you and Ruben on, on fulfilling that. That's, I know that's something you've been working on for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. It's been, it's been difficult, but we got there, you know. Um, so we're, we're here. Now let's get it out. Right. Over the blood, sweat, and tears and drama, you've emerged <laughs> on the other side. <laughs> yes, that's but, right. That's right. And I, I'm curious, like, was there a particular testimony of a, um, one witness that you found to be just kind of, you weren't expecting it mind-blowing. Um, I know there's a lot of great stuff that came out of it, but was there one that just sort of put you over the top? 
Yeah, I have two favorite moments at the International UFO Congress. We're going to be doing, you know, highlights this coming year. But essentially, there are two moments that really struck me. And one was not a surprise, but it's one of my favorites. It's when uh, John Callahan, who is, uh, you know, one of the top dogs at the FAA during the Japan Airlines incident, gave his testimony again. And to hear him, you know, I walked up to him and I said, so you have all this footage, right? You have all of this uh, data reports, the audio recordings. You, you have this in your possession. It hasn't been taken from you, right? And he, he puts down his cane against the table, opens his briefcase, and inside is all of this data. And he says, yeah, and, and, and here it is. And I just thought it was so cool when he went up in front of those five congressmen and that one senator, and he told his story again. And he told how the CIA came in and said, we've never had this much footage of a, and we'll say a UAP or a UFO traversing and, and, and dogging, you know, and dogging this aircraft. I mean, there's more to the story than people think. There was a huge object next to the craft, but there was also a massive light display in a rectangular form that flashed into the pilot's eyes over and over. It was a pattern. And it, it's really interesting that there's more to that story. But essentially what he has is he has this footage. So when they gave it to the CIA, the CIA said, this meeting never happened. You were never here. And you're to never talk about this. And they had everybody raise their hand and do an oath. Well, Callahan, being a Boston tough guy, basically didn't raise his hand. He was like, who are you? I'm John Callahan from the FAA. Who are you to give orders to me. And he kept that footage. He would have been willing to give it back, but they never came for it. So that's the only reason we know about that case and can replicate it on radar systems is because John Callahan is a badass. So that was one of my favorite ones, obviously. And my second favorite one was just the most bizarre anonymous interview. Here's a guy on his deathbed. I mean, he literally had a number of months of his kidneys shut down, and they didn't. He was able to live a little bit longer. But essentially, uh, you know, he chose in the last days of his life to jam into a secret little hotel room in the middle of nowhere by the Canadian border and essentially, with these room of strangers, tell his story of working on the real Blue Book files and what his work was for the CIA. Now, believe him or not, because I don't have any evidence other than the documents that he did work for the military, but his work with the CIA was off the record, which it obviously often is. And, you know, even his own wife, she's very religious. She was very against him doing this interview. I mean, very against, because she believed that aliens, what he saw, that they were um, demonic. That was her faith, her belief system. So despite all the personal roadblocks that he had to be in there in that room with us, and he didn't even want his face shown. I had to convince him that without using his true name, that because um, he said only when I die can you use my face, right? Not even my name, just my face. But um, he, you know, he allowed me to do it. And whether I believe his whole story or not, I, I don't even know. But but I do know that the, the crux of it, the core of it, appears to be true. And um, that was a really fascinating experience and, and an honor to be able to be part of that. And Ruben set that up, um, and, and that, was, that was really, really a cool part of the hearing is to have that part shown to the audience because it's a contingency of people 
who don't want to be known, but just cannot bear the burden that has been on their soul for a number of years. Wow. Well, uh, Jeremy, I, I came across your work through your extensive research, both article form and in film, uh, with Bob Lazar. And um, I think all of us here can agree that we do believe that Bob Lazar was where he says he was and was doing what he said he was doing. Um, my question for you is, um, you said earlier that you have sort of been, I guess, privileged or um, through happenstance have met with some people in power or um, in the military. And you came across a gentleman, Dr. Krangel, in terms of the Bob Lazar story. And I was just wondering how that came about and what you've learned about Krangel and what he has to offer in terms of the Lazar quote unquote controversy. Right. Okay. So like Lazar, Krangel has offered the entirety of what he has to offer. And he did it one time and I found him. He didn't find me. He's not a UFO guy. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, I have a number of programs that I use to kind of scour the chatter of the internet, you know, everything from Google alerts to more sophisticated technologies. And, you know, it's not that secret or anything. It's just something that I use and um, keywords or phrases come up. And so I was able to uh, initiate one of those programs on Facebook and came across a comment somewhere. And the comment that I was looking for was, I know Bob Lazar. And so this was somewhere inside of uh, a Facebook comment, and it was actually one of my friends said, I know Bob Lazar. And I finally found uh, this gentleman named Paul who is uh, military, and he had written something that basically said, my neighbor growing up uh, told me I know Bob Lazar. I worked with him out at Los Alamos. And, you know, I thought this was important because – a lot of people get stuck on a couple things about Lazar's story because, you know, literally you cannot prove them or they're just not true. But the, the, the thing that, that, that is true that was always killing me, and this is because I personally have seen, you know, footage that won't be released, but I have seen footage of Lazar in Los Alamos working and that sort of thing. So essentially, you know, I know that he worked there in the capacity that he said he did. But this is still a sticking point for some people that he was some sort of janitor out at Los Alamos. They couldn't get around the fact that he was in the phone book, that he was on the front cover of the Los Alamos monitor as a physicist, um, and that there were employees that at one time were confirming to George Knapp, who's done all the legwork for the last 26 years on this. And uh, we never had anybody come forward because even today, even today, I almost had an interview drop out because an individual who I'm going to name publicly um, in January, as you've heard of Nanoman, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's time to kind of release who he is and talk about his projects just right open and in, in the public eye. Except, you know, look, here's a guy that relies oftentimes um, on contracts, you know, from Lawrence Livermore, Los Alamos, um, even – he got $27 million from Wright-Patterson to develop a carbon nano thread and $2 million from NASA. I mean, this is a guy that lives like most scientists off of grants. And so when you speak out and as Krangel said, you break from the fold, you know, less often are you going to get these contracts. Even Lazar today, when he gets military contracts, there are jokes that are thrown at him. Now, you know, Bob, this is secret. 
We don't want people talking about it, Bob. So even when he gets these current contracts, it still kind of haunts him that he spoke out, although he needed to because he was being threatened. His life was in danger. We know for a fact that his phones, George Knapp's phones were tapped, that people were following them. George Knapp actually met one of the people that was tasked to follow him at that time. So we know for a fact this was going on, but people are resistant to speak out and for good reason. So Krangle, the interesting thing about him was when I found him, he had no idea who I was, no idea what I wanted to talk to him about. So when I finally got to his laboratory, I said, look, I'd really love to film you. I know that's probably a non-starter because you seem to be an extremely private person, but I would like to audio record you. And if you'll tell me everything you can about knowing Bob, then I would really appreciate it. And there will be blowback. And as long as you're prepared for that. And what was funny was he says, look, nobody in New Mexico can do what I can do. I'm a calibrations expert. I'm the go-to guy. When they need something fixed, they come to me. I'm not worried about losing income because I barely get any more you know, income now from Los Alamos. He proved to me, beyond a shadow of a doubt, contracts that he had uh, with China Lake, White Sands Missile Base, um, even Homeland Security contracts. He proved that to me. I then shared that with an individual in order to make sure that I've done my due diligence. And then he told me a story. And the story was really simple. The story was I knew Bob. Bob was working at Los Alamos at that time. Clearly, we were in security meetings together. We were in briefings together. It's not a place for a janitor. Okay, These are high-level security briefings. And he was a physicist. We didn't know exactly what the other one was working on, but clearly our projects overlapped a little bit because we were in the same briefings together. And so that was huge. That was huge because we can no longer distract from the uncomfortable truth of the Lazar story that Lazar was some sort of janitor, that he is a scientist, a physicist, and he was working in scientific and you know physics uh, capacity at Los Alamos. So done. We're done with that. No one person's ideas about Lazar, no matter how credible they appear to be, um, you know, is case closed with Lazar. And, and I will tell you, Lazar is telling the truth. And if that if that's hard to believe, good. He wants it that way. He'd rather be left alone. We all know about Lazar and <clears throat> Area 51, for that matter, from our friend George Knapp. And uh, George, investigative reporter at KLIS in Vegas and uh, weekend host of Coast to Coast AM, uh, you and George spent a lot of time together. And recently, you even went to Giant Rock in uh, California together, place that was a big gathering place in the 50s for UFO people. I got to ask, what was it like being there? Well, you know, I live actually not too far from there from time to time, and Giant Rock is a fascinating location with a very sordid history by the Integratron, where Van Tassel kind of ran some of the world's largest UFO conventions and also built the Integratron allegedly off mm -hmm. of, you know, alien technologies or ideas. Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting about, uh, you know, George Knapp, so George is my mentor. Um, he has been... Uh, incredibly helpful in teaching me the ropes on how to vet sources, how to, um, you know, talk with people to move forward, to move the needle forward, and also how not to get fooled. You know, I get a lot of uh, personal attacks, but also a attacks on my um, integrity. People try to give me false stories all the time. They're kind of hilarious attempts half the time, like, 
come on, really, right? But, you know, it does happen. And so it, it, he, he is an invaluable and an incredible resource um, in, in the education process that I go through in dealing with certain, you know, high-level cases. Uh, two things about that. One is, uh, yeah, we went to Giant Rock. George was doing a story, uh, doing a story for Sweeps for Channel 8 on UFOs over Nevada, and he was doing a, an interview, and he asked me, well, can you, you know, give one account of an interview in Nevada about a sighting? And I was actually able to incorporate some footage I had with Marilee Lear, the infamous, or I guess that's not the right word I was told the other day, the famous uh, John Lear, godfather of conspiracy, with his wife Marilee. She would always try to uh, kind of kill the UFO thing for him. It was so crazy, the people coming at him. It was too much pressure that she'd lock his files away uh, from time to time in a storage unit and not tell him where they were and shut off the line or change the phone number. And this went on for years where she just couldn't handle John and what he was doing. And then one day she goes into the backyard and she sees two um, craft, you know, that were clearly non-aerodynamic. And so I was able to put that into the report that George was doing for Channel 8. Uh, additionally, something else that happened with George that was pretty fascinating was I, I got the word that he was going to be the moderator for a panel of the CIA and uh, former employees of Area 51 out at the National Testing Museum. So the Atomic Testing Museum in Vegas. So I went out there and this, guys, was pretty crazy. So you're there with the lead or head official historian for the CIA and the head science and technology CIA uh, executive for Area 51 for 20 or 30 years. I mean, a guy that like lived on the base that long and a very sharp individual, uh, Mr. Petit. And what was pretty amazing was there, there was also the head of the Roadrunners there who were people that worked on the SR-71 uh, SR and uh, this sort of thing. And basically what happened was they talked the whole time about the great work they did up until 1964. They were telling us there's nothing secret about the base and we produce the SR-71, uh, the B-2, spy, the, the, the stealth fighter who, by the way, John Lear was the first person ever to put out an image of the stealth fighter. And it was astounding to me. Nobody asked any UFO questions. And this is part of the lore of Area 51. So I was able to hit the, the, the two head CIA guys with, with, I think it was four UFO-based questions. And man, was it uncomfortable. I mean, <laughs> I, when I said, is there now, past, present, or future, or at any time, were you aware of on the Nellis range of a facility called Site 4? And that was kind of a trick question because we already know a public informations officer in 1989 directly told George Knapp, yes, we have multiple S4s. That was before all of this had to be hush-hushed. And then later I did find out from credible military sources who would have been in the position to know that, in fact, there is an S4 at Poopoos Lake, exactly like... Lazar described. But, uh, you know, basically it, we called back again, uh, George and myself, and the public information officer gave us the funniest answer ever. He had to consult for 24 hours, came back to us and said, there is no site for designated on any of our maps, which I thought was the funniest way to say, <laughs> I can't tell you, buddies. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, this uh, CIA thing was pretty amazing because um, they did some amazing things out at Area 51. 
But with the UFO question, clearly it's the job of the CIA to, to keep secrets, to tell lies, to misinform and to disinform when it's in the, um, the, you know, the concept of national security, which everything at Area 51 is in the concept of national security. So I didn't take it personally, but the CIA lied to me. Oh, <laughs> oh, poor Jeremy. Yeah, but it was a very cool video. You should watch it. It's it's very uncomfortable to watch. Oh, I've seen it. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen these it guys, too. These yeah. guys are amazing. These guys are really, really uh, astounding people. I've continued contact, and you know, I'm I have a lot of respect for them. But you know, hey, we got to get the truth out there. And this I think is- that's something that that happens in the National Atomic Testing Museum, also, because we've been to quite a few presentations there, and Jason and I you know, have interviewed a lot of the guys that worked on Project Blue Book. And it is awkward because it's almost like they don't know they're getting themselves into a UFO situation, even though they it's like pretty clear that that (laughs) is a big component of what's going on there. Unbelievable. But then they get there and they're like, oh, kind of awkward. And like, okay, so you're going to love this, Maureen. This is the funniest thing. So I'm sitting there and George, you know, he's, he's pushing, right? He's pushing for some answers. And he says, okay, let's start with this really simply, Mr. Petit, you know, you, you know, are the top, uh, science and technology executive at Area 51 for, you know, more than two decades. What was your favorite part about working at Area 51? And he went on for 15 minutes with a filibuster talking about how his favorite part weekly at working at Area 51 was the night they got to go out and rent a penthouse and they had a pole in the penthouse and girls would slide down the pole, these, you know, <laughs> Vegas uh, showgirls. I was sitting there with my jaw dropped saying, he really doesn't want to be here. He doesn't want to <laughs> talk about this. He is filibustering. It was hilarious. A little sexy time at Air. That we don't get here about that often. No, no, on, on the strip, on the strip, they really okay, read a few right. Yeah, just anyways. <laughs> you better if it was happening on the base, but well, you know, there, yeah, a, fly, so flying a, blindfolded strippers out there, that'd be great. <laughs> Area Fifty One Club, how do you, how do you, is that the third? <laughs> the Mile High well, I mean, Club. We, how do you, you we do have our alien uh, brothel, so we well, should we should right. actually start an Area Fifty One Club. That'd be pretty cool. Did you like going there to the brothel, Marie? Uh, still on my wish list. <laughs> no, somebody's got to investigate that because I just don't believe that's real. But I've heard about that. <laughs> I've heard about it too. Guys, I'll bite the bullet. I'll do it. <laughs> All right. We'll send Sprague in as well. Our uh, J- Jeremy, I think I think that needs to be one of your investigative pieces. Oh, too oh, much totally. hand sanitizer. Not enough hand sanitizer in the world for me to do that story. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeremy, you've, you've tackled a, a, a wide variety of topics in this strange field, from the citizen hearing and the anonymous interview, Bob Lazar, John Lear, Roger Lear. I've got to ask, what's next? Do you have other projects that you're working on, other avenues you're exploring now? Funny you ask that question. Um, yes, in fact, uh, I do. There's a couple of things uh, coming out this year that I'm very excited about because I kind of play the, the 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 cosmic time game with my stories. I have stories that I'm sitting on that are very powerful, and it's just not the right time to release them. You know, one would be for security reasons. The other is just because I need to build the case a little bit more. But one of the cases that I build that's that, that's that's now ripe is. Um, Nanoman. So this year, 
you will see and the identity will be revealed of who I've been referring to as Nanoman. I've already put out a short called Nanoman Utility Fog where I went to NASA, was able, you know, was able to essentially interrogate this substance that uh, was uh, nanotechnology, something that allegedly we at this time, black budget or not, just simply don't have the ability to create on the atomic level. Now, I'm not convinced on that story. It's just something I reported on. But now, this year, will be the year of Nanoman. There'll be a bunch of footage coming out. You're going to learn who he is, the major projects that he's worked on, everything from carbon nanotube construction to uh, cold fusion R&D. Uh, you'll be hearing a lot about that. To um, the space drive, which is a propulsion system that essentially has a uh, you know breaks Newtonian physics there there's no um output for its forward momentum he literally has a theory on how it works but doesn't really know it it's a really astounding piece of machinery and it it's not an i wouldn't say it's an overproduction device or uh, whatever they call it. it it's it's a beta test of a concept of how new meta materials never before seen by humanity only developed within the last 7 or 8 years um, they relate to our physics in a peculiar way due to their atomic construction is the best way that, that I can understand it at this time. So Nanoman, you're going to be hearing a lot about him and what's going on. If you haven't watched Patient 17, for those of you that, that, that follow some of my films, check it out. It's a great film. There's probably more to come on that. And if we're at the end of the show... I want to give you one last thing, but not till the end. Please do. Is this the end? Yes. Or, yes. This is the end. Okay. <laughs> the only thing I can say is there will be something very, very interesting to all of you coming very soon. And right now it's under lock and key, but you will be able to go to a site you can't get into if you go to hunttheskinwalker.com. What? I saw you. I saw I just you got post chills. something on Instagram about that, and that's one of my favorite cases. Mm -hmm. And the book, obviously, by George Knapp and uh, Colm Keller mm -hmm. is all right. What else? Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, that's all I can say about that. But I just have to say, you know, Hunt the Skinwalker is far beyond just a location or a book. You know, there's a. Uh, the phenomenon itself seems to reveal in different ways to different people, everything from UFOs to the paranormal. It's a wide net. And um, I think in the very near future, you will be hearing more about that. But I, as the CIA guys told me, I cannot confirm or deny any of your thoughts on that, but just look out for it. It's going to be really amazing. Well, that's amazing. And I think Such we need to end the interview right now because I need to get you drunk and hear more about this. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck, buddy. Well, Jeremy, this has been fun. Uh, as always, thanks so much for chatting with us and filling us in on, on your interesting pursuits. And as we've told you many times before, you are a fantastic investigator and an even better filmmaker. So congrats on everything you've accomplished, buddy. Uh, thanks, guys, and I really look forward. I think this year is going to be really cool, and I'm so glad you guys are running a show like this because, likewise, you know, there's a lot of signal to noise, but you guys bring the signal, and I really, really appreciate it. So, you know, let's continue to work together. Let's get towards the truth. The closer we get, the better it feels. You got it, brother. Thanks, guys.
If you've missed any of our previous shows, you can always find our episodes on the website RoguePlanet.tv. But UFO Mod Pod is also on iTunes and Stitcher, so you can find us there too. Thanks again to Jeremy for hanging out with us today. Make sure to check out his website, ExtraordinaryBeliefs.com, to see everything he's up to. If you have a UFO sighting or story you want to share with us, we'd love to hear it. If you've got something you want to share, use the contact form on our website, RoguePlanet.tv, and send those to us. And again, the show is on iTunes. Subscribe and leave a stellar review if you enjoyed the show. Thanks again for joining us today. I'm Jason McClellan. I'm Ryan Sprague. And I'm Marina Ellsbury. Don't forget the sanitizer. 